I just feel like we've been talking about stay-at-home work forever. And, and there is, there is, I believe it has its uses, especially when you consider, yeah, I was just sick for a couple days, right? I was at home doing the show. It, we have perfected that to a certain extent. I do believe there is an incredible, I don't know how you quantify it, but there is a real value to being at work, being with your coworkers, being with your bosses, hashing out ideas in real time, seeing people face to face. Look, this isn't the pandemic anymore. But there is, with the that expectation of in-person work, there is still that thing that people are clinging to. And in my mind, rightfully so. From the pandemic, and that's working from home. I think that there are a certain segment of people that have perfected working from home. Meaning, you don't need the drive-in anymore. The drive home. You don't maybe don't take a lunch because you can walk up to your kitchen Make a sandwich and then get back to your office. There, there was a certain segment of people that ha- have streamlined their work day that any deviation from that would cause an uproar or, or a, a, at least a pushback. Well, General Motors is changing its return to work policy again by now requiring salaried workers within 50 miles of their assigned office location to work in person Tuesday through Thursday. That starts January 8th. Uh, Kevin Kelly, a GM spokesperson, telling the Detroit News, hybrid employees need to be in the office Tuesday through Thursday in order to meet critical business needs and retain company culture. But here's where I think that companies like GM and certainly many, many others What did those companies do during the pandemic? They hired from outside of the of the region of the locale. So, like, if you work in the Rensen. uh, You got to go to work, but if you work for GM through the Rensen and you live in Minneapolis, well, you're not going to work Tuesday through Thursday. So I, I think there could create a little bit of a fissure for those that are being held to a certain standard because of where their home is located as opposed to somebody else who was hired in and they live not within that 50 mile radius of their office. So it'll be interesting to see how GM handles that. Uh, In the meantime, speaking of GM, CEO Mary Barra says the company still has a pathway to be all electric by 2035. Barra told the gathering of the automotive press association, quote, we're going to be led by the the customer But I do believe this transition will happen over a period of time. So it's about to be 2024. So you're looking at, in the next 11 years, an all-EV offering by General Motors. This comes as there has been a bit of a rollback of EV production, not just amongst the automotive sector, but certainly with General Motors. There is also some chatter about GM bringing back hybrid vehicles. Mary Barra talked about hybrids briefly during the Automotive Press Association event, saying that we have the hybrid technology. You want to move to EVs as quickly as you can, but we have the technology. We'll continue to look at where the market is, where the regulatory environment is. 
And I, she is spot on. You have to follow the market, but you also have to follow where the regulations are. And if the federal government is setting regulations at a standard that they have to meet, well, then, the, then they're met a little bit and sit between a rock and a hard place. Uh, interesting story in out of Genesee County. D- Brian, are you familiar with Jelly Roll? You know who Jelly Roll is? I do not know. Okay. Danielle. Yes, Danielle's knows. not going to okay, yell at Danielle, me. Thank right. You. Okay, I apologize. Danielle, you know Jelly Roll. Yes, I do. Did you know Jelly Roll? Uh, Jelly Roll is a country artist now? Yeah, I knew that from uh, a while. Yeah. Okay. I don't know country music. It's, it's awful. Okay. Um, but, uh, but he was a rapper. Correct. Now he's a country artist. Yeah. Don't know how you make that change. He's kind of doing what Kid Rock did. So keep going. Okay. That's cool. Um, Jelly Roll is going to be in Genesee County tonight. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's going to be giving a commencement speech and performing songs at the Genesee County Jail for <laughs> inmates. Yeah. He'll be a part of the graduation ceremony for the Ignite program, which is the inmate growth naturally and intentionally through education program. It's a program that aims to educate and provide jail inmates with job training so they can get employed after their release and there's no recidivism so they don't come back into the system. 23 inmates have completed the program. They've earned GEDs, diplomas, barber school certificates, welding certificates. That's according to the Genesee County Sheriff, Chris Swanson. So Jelly Roll, who was incarcerated at one time, got his GED while he was behind bars and is now kind of paying it forward. Isn't that cool? I don't know anything about the guy, but I think that's pretty awesome. You know, he's very different, and I, I'm not really sure why, but over, I think it was two summers ago, he randomly did a whole concert in a cornfield and then donated the money to, like, uh, one of the counties up north. My brother went to the concert. Oh, he really? de- he in does, Michigan? Yeah. Oh, no. He's always around here, and I'm not really sure, like, what he the from? Link- he's not from here. No. I no, he's from Nashville. Okay. But for some reason he has he, he does this stuff around here. And I'm just wondering if they do it he does it in other places too. Well, it's very cool. And uh when you're when you get to a certain level and you're singing for jail inmates, I think it's pretty cool. It is a and it is kind of a traditional country music thing. Johnny Cash was famous for performing in jails. You knew that. Sure. And you know who Merle Haggard is? Yes. Johnny Cash discovered him while he was a prisoner. Oh, really? I didn't yes. know that. And helped him oh, rehab himself and become a star. So it's kind of a cool thing that a country music guy is sort of carrying Still this doing tradition it. on. Yeah, It's very cool. Uh, meanwhile, these allegations read like a, a, a Scorsese movie. A trusted Foreign Service American diplomat with an impeccable resume is turned by a communist government of Cuba and divulges untold number of U.S. secrets. And he did this not just for a few years, literally for decades. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joins us with a story that is real and unraveling in Miami this week. Yeah. Unbelievable. We're going to hear more about this, too. So think about this. 73-year-old Manuel Rocha or Racha flew under the radar for 40 years. He's now been charged with serving as a secret agent for Cuba. It's a scheme prosecutors say was one of the most brazen, long-running betrayals in the history of the U.S. Foreign Service. Racha had previously served in top posts in Bolivia and in other posts in Italy, Honduras, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. He also worked 
as a Latin American expert at the National Security Council. And prosecutors say they think that this all started back in 1981 when he became this spy for Cuba. He was arrested at his Miami home. The Justice Department did not disclose how Racha came to the attention of Cuba's intelligence operatives, but they did say Cuba has a long history of sophisticated intelligence services that are able to target government officials who can be flipped. The Racha case relies on what prosecutors say were his own admissions over the last year or so to an undercover FBI agent who was posing as a Cuban intelligence operator. He bragged that the to this undercover agent about his long service as a Cuban mole in the State Department. He even praised the Cuban leader Fidel Castro, calling him Comandante. And he met this undercover agent at a church in an outdoor food court. And in another giveaway, prosecutors say that when he was on his way to these meetings, he'd employ these in evasive movements on his route, sometimes even stopping for a while just to make sure nobody was following him. And that, they say, is classic counterintelligence tradecraft as taught by uh, Cuba's spy masters. Chris, he was made his first court appearance this week. He sat handcuffed, crying. He was ordered held pending a bond hearing, and we may learn about further uh, charges against him in the next couple of days. It is an unbelievable story. You know, it, it almost, it, you would think that for somebody who was working on behalf of the Cuban government for so long, or, or, or just against the United States, that there would be signs that somebody along the way might catch a whiff of something that was going on that wasn't right, that wasn't above board. And instead, if this really started in 1981, I mean, my God, this is like a over 40-year crime. That Spree. It yeah. is unbelievable. Right, right. Unbelievable. Right. And that's what's really concerning is how much information how much? was. What did you know, he know? What, what did he say? And uh, earlier we, when we were talking with Paul W., uh, you know, he had said, well, why would they want to, you know, have any contact or any espionage with Cuba? But you got to remember who Cuba's friends are. Mm-hmm. Russia. Yep. So uh, this information may have been going there. We don't we don't know that. I'm only hypothesizing. And, and we that. said that it, he, the last time that he may have made contact with them was 2017. I think I read. Right, because he he retired from the Foreign Correct. Service. So he was now working. He just had another he job just, recently. Right. So, he but just this, went rogue. Right. So this was, mm. you know, this was long before that that he did that. And apparently um, the uh, contact between the agent, this undercover agent, and Rocha, believe it or not, was made on WhatsApp. Oh, and God. and yes, and this this was in the federal complaint, and that said uh, the uh, the undercover agent said, "I have a message for you from your friends in Havana." <laughs> oh, good God! Almighty. And he and he bit and he, and he bit and he made contact with this mm. undercover agent. Unbelievable, Marie Osborne. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we got to take a break. Very excited for our next guest. In my in my mind, he is one of the best play by play voices in the United States, and now he will be calling games for your Detroit Tigers. We'll talk to Jason Benetti next on JR Afternoon. You know, we're we're very lucky here um, because when you consider our sports teams and the type of caliber, the play-by-play voices that we have, I mean, look, I, I'm biased, but we've got some of the best in the business. 
I mean, you guys from college all the way to pro, we are very blessed. And and I think that now with the addition of Jason Benetti to your Tigers broadcast, it, it, this thing has taken a huge step up. Because in my mind, you know, as somebody who does play-by-play, Jason Benetti is one of the best in the business. Baseball, basketball, football recently. I mean, he does it all and uh, one of the best in the business. And now he'll be doing your Tiger games on TV. Jason Benetti joins us. Jason, it's great to have you. Chris, that is unbelievably generous. I heard what you said going into the break, and I am really honored that you think that. That is that is really kind of you. Well, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And, and my question, I guess right off the rip, you're a Chicago kid. Uh, you had, I would imagine, if, you know, whatever town you're from, you're calling, you know, your home team, you're calling the Red Sox or the, the White Sox. You've been there for a number of years. You did Bulls games. What what drew you away from the Windy City for the Motor City? Yeah, it's, it, it wasn't that I got pulled away. It was that once I got into the orbit of the Tigers and the people of the Tigers, I, uh, I had to. I mean, I, it's funny how this started, quote-unquote started, because it's not exactly that it was about to happen, but the rumors a couple of years ago in Chicago were that A.J. Hinch was going to be the manager of the White Sox. And from what I heard, it was close to happening. And then the White Sox hired Tony LaRusa. And about a month after that, uh, after the season started that next year, I had a Tiger game for ESPN and we were working from home. But I talked to AJ on Zoom. And I, one of the first things I said to him was, I, I really hoped that we were going to be doing this every day <laughs> in a clubhouse. Because I, I have the utmost respect for AJ Hinch's mind and the way he handles in-game operation and the way he gets the most out of his roster. He thinks like a front office person, but he has like the, you know, he has like the grit of a baseball person too. And he's got some salt in there as well. I just, I really do think he's the perfect combination for a current major league manager. And that's not the only reason, but, but that is one of the reasons. And, And it's a microcosm of what the Tigers are trying to do they're trying to build something. And I think they are well on their way to building something that's going to be really fun developmentally, but also wins wise. Like I, I think the world of Scott and AJ and Jeff and everybody that I've met and the way they treated me in the interview process, like, yeah, to your original question, it was a really hard decision to think about leaving. But once I got in the orbit of the Tigers, it was easy. Uh, your introductory press conference a couple of weeks ago, and 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 we've been trying to track you down. You, you've been busy doing college football. You've been on the West Coast calling games in Seattle at Washington, now the number two team in the country going into the college football playoff. Uh, you've been all over the place. So we, we, we appreciate you taking some time with us. But in your introductory press conference a couple of weeks ago, you, you shared um, – a big part of your life and why you thought this move to Detroit would be a good one for people that maybe hadn't heard it. I I wanted you to just share that story again. Yeah. So, you know, um, I have cerebral palsy for those that don't know. Um, I I live with uh, walking with a limp and one of my eyes drifts. So when you see me on camera at the top of a game, I promise you, I know that one of the big keys to first impressions is great eye contact and striding with a purpose. 
but I can't, so I'm sorry. Uh, so when, when people see me on television, that's one of the first things you're going to see. And for me, I've always gravitated toward people who don't really care about that, who look past that and look at the details of who I am and what my work says and everything that goes along with me past that superficial stuff. And I can't help but think after traveling there quite a bit and growing up in the Midwest and hearing what people say about the city of Detroit, if they know very little about the city, that Detroit and I have some similarities and that it gets judged for being something that it's not based on statistics or anecdotal evidence because you heard about one bad thing that happened there. And I am the type of person who gets judged on one thing that people see about me. And it's annoying and it's frustrating, but it's also a really beautiful thing when people look past it. And so I, you know, I can't help but feel like there are a lot of people in Detroit who just wanna say, hey, notice us for the good stuff. Notice us for the stuff that's beyond that first blush opinion. And so that's where I think uh, Detroit and I Again, I, I don't, I say this, and I said this in the press conference, and I think it's really important to say here as well, I don't know if people are going to like me. There are some people who are going to like you, some people who don't. So I can't say that that's the reason, like, Detroit is going to fall in love with my work or whatever. That's for everybody else to decide. But to me, I've always had a deep understanding of people, groups of people, who feel like they're not really noticed or heard. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, it was an incredibly touching sentiment, and um, and I, I, the every piece of feedback that I've seen, um, uh, people are already taking you, uh, into their homes, uh, and and wanting to hear what you have to say about this Tiger team, because um, I, I think it's incredibly important that that you're on board, and and now we enter a really fun time, I think, for this team because. Uh, AJ Hinch with that extension, so you're going to be able to talk to him for the next foreseeable future, and <laughs> and 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 this team is getting better. You know the Riley Greens, the Spencer Torkelsons have improved. They're going to need to make some headway on on their their pitching rotation. But this team, Scott Harris is coming in and taking a different approach than GMs of the past. And I think when you pair everybody up, th- this thing is taking an upward trajectory. And I. I that's, I think, is something that's exciting to a lot of folks around here. I agree. And, you know, I, having seen a rebuild in Chicago and, and knowing what people think when you say the word development, uh, it's not only about the development. What I love that the Tigers have done is that they have been willing to expend resources to get a big free agent. And I know Javi didn't have the season that he wanted or everybody in Detroit wanted last year. But I do think it's a signal that this team is willing to do both. Right. You're going to go get free agents if you need to get free agents and you're going to develop people from a distance. I love what they've done with the young pitching. Like I saw Reese Olsen's debut last year and he was nails against the White Sox. And, you know, I've seen Riley Green and if he can stay healthy, he's he's a dangerous cat. And clearly there was improvement in the swing and miss profile of Torkelson and Mm -hmm. all of that that goes along with it. And they're really excited from what I've heard, and I haven't seen like Erie or Toledo, but they're really excited about the young pitching that's on its way. So yeah. for me, they're doing it the right way. They're doing both. And, and that's what I'm thrilled about. And you have a manager 
who knows how to use those pieces. Yep. Right. He's going to move the pieces around in the way that you should. Um, I don't want to now uh, alienate half of your 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 viewership, um, but you are a Wake Forest. Crowd. Okay. Um, who, who lays claim to Kenneth Walker? Oh my, uh, that's a wild one. <laughs> so the thing is, that is that was not on the board of questions that I thought I was going to get. Uh, it's really funny, like end of the ACC season because I went to Syracuse for undergrad and yeah. Wake Forest for for law. And and now that I say that, like 20% of people will be skeptical of me because I went to law school immediately, right? Like people roll their eyes or like they glaze over when you start talking about tort law. But uh, I get like three or four snarky texts every time Syracuse plays Wake Forest and people are like, it's the Benetti Bowl. Yeah. And I'm like, can I just throw my phone into a lake? <laughs> like I, I, I love, I will say, if you haven't been to Wake Forest, it is a beautiful. I hear campus. that. Like I, I was just like on and off the campus for class. I didn't really spend much time there, but it is awesome yeah. and beautiful. Yeah. And I, that that is a long way of me saying I have no answer for that, you. That's a good answer. That's a good answer, Jason Benetti. Thanks for the time, man. Uh, can't wait to meet you in person and look forward to the season. Can I say go Panthers? Like I, I yeah. use you the Panthers games, yeah. right? Yeah, that's good stuff. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Love it. Love it. See you. That's Jason Benetti, uh, the new play-by-play voice of your Detroit Tigers. I'm telling you, you're going to love him. All right, got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, th- we we talk a lot of different issues on this show, and, and certainly health continues to be a main factor for people all across America. But there is so many different groups working to tackle so many different issues. And, of course, the... Michael J. Fox Foundation continues to tackle Parkinson's disease. It can be an insidious disease, but there are ways to manage it and live with it. And certainly we are seeing uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation further development and research into this disease and to help uh, one day find a cure and, and hopefully make things a little easier for people dealing with it. Uh, Alyssa O'Grady is the Vice President of Clinical Research for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research and joins us. Alyssa, it's good to have you. Thanks for having me. We also uh, are joined by Alan Dance. He is a participant in the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, and he is living with Parkinson's disease risk factors. And Alan joins us uh, as well. Alan, it's great to have you. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. I I I do want to start, uh, Alyssa, with you, because there has been a tremendous amount of work done in in Parkinson's research. Where do we stand today for those who are are ever endeavoring for a cure for this disease? There are about a million people living in the United States with Parkinson's disease and just over 33,000 people living in the state of Michigan with Parkinson's. It's the Michael J. Fox Foundation's mission to end Parkinson's disease, and we have a major study that is getting us closer and closer to that goal. The study is called the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI for short, and the study needs people of all backgrounds with and without Parkinson's disease to help researchers move science forward and develop better treatments for Parkinson's. And Alan, you're in this initiative. Tell me a little bit about what you're going through with the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, the PPMI. Okay, well, it it first began for me about 30 years ago when I started to notice that compared to a lot of my friends, I had a poor sense of smell. 
And it took uh, 30 years later, a couple of years ago now, 59, um, I, I developed REM sleep behavior disorder. Mm. And what that fundamentally is, is that sometimes when I'm asleep, whatever I'm dreaming, my, my arms and legs, my body starts to act out what I'm dreaming. Mm. And it's not the whole night, but it can be pretty, pretty aggressive. So I, if I'm dreaming, I'm playing basketball or volleyball, both my hands may go up all of a sudden in my sleep to block a shot. Or if I'm dreaming about a presentation I made yesterday at work, all of a sudden in my sleep, I just start talking and, and redoing the presentation. Or there's something funny that happened in my dream, I started laughing. And, you know, this started a couple of years ago, and this is what first gave us an indication that there's something going on more than just being a little active at night. And so through PPMI, what, what uh, are you experiencing to try to, to, to push some of these symptoms back? Um, right now with these symptoms, there's not really anything known to change those or fix those. Um, but that's part of what the research is about, too, is trying to find out what are the common things that people are experiencing and what are the things you can do about it. And now that I'm aware of it, uh, things that I can do include exercise. You know, um, people who exercise delay the onset of symptoms more than people who don't exercise. And then likewise, people who vigorously exercise um, on a more regular basis, they defer the symptoms even more. So I'm able to do some things like that. I'm able to do some things that are just good, healthy um, practices that are good for brain health that help as well. Things like getting a good night of sleep and uh, having a healthy diet. And so I'm, you know, I'm doing what I can to help make a difference you know, for, for myself and, and for others by participating in the study. Alyssa O'Grady with us as well, the Vice President of Clinical Research for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Alyssa, you mentioned a couple of moments ago the importance of gathering this data from from people with different backgrounds, whether that's uh, gender, uh, race, ethnicity, uh, where your your heritage lies in the world. These can all be very important factors when, when trying to put this very complicated puzzle of of finding a cure together how important is it to have that depth of knowledge from people with all different backgrounds all different um um factors when you're considering uh gathering all of this information you put it beautifully it's it's crucially important to increase the diversity of research participants because it will help scientists paint a fuller picture of parkinson's disease Nothing illustrates this better than a research breakthrough that the Fox Foundation helped usher in earlier this year in the field of genetics. An international coalition of scientists and geneticists discovered a genetic change specific to African and African-American populations where people who have this genetic change are at a higher risk for Parkinson's. Prior studies in Parkinson's genetics had only been done in folks of Northern European ancestry. So it shows that if you don't include people from all backgrounds in your study, you might miss something. And on the flip side, when you do include diverse research participants, you can discover new hints and new clues for ways to develop new treatments for the disease. Alan, you know, you you talked about some of the symptoms that you were experiencing, the the way that that your body reacted when you got into a state of REM when you were you were sleeping at night. Um, I, I think it's easy for all of us to say, well, geez, we need to be healthier or we need to exercise more or mental health is a huge priority. But once you went down this path of the, the markers that you were exhibiting, how, in, 
how did how did you come to the realization that brain health and and making sure that you're keeping that that part of your body sharp when did you realize that that was a, a really important factor for you you know once i got my um, diagnosis for REM sleep behavior disorder saw a neurologist understood that okay i am on a path of parkinson's um, i joined the study and also started to access some of the tools on the michael j fox website and they're fantastic so uh, my, my neurologist, as well as the tools on the site, have helped to tell me, helped inform me and educate me what are the things I can be doing to make a difference. You know, it, it's not like me to just sit down and take something. I'm, I'm going to put up a fight. And Michael J. Fox is leading the fight, so I'm happy to be doing it with them. And I'm likewise happy to be learning what I can learn about it to make a difference for myself as well. And, and Alyssa, I, I, you know, <laughs> again, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 35. I have two little kids my approach to health has changed uh, where before my five-year-old was born, ah, if there's something that's a little off about my health or I got a weird, you know, something that I, maybe I should go see a doctor about, I, I may not. But that mentality needs to change. If there's ever something where somebody feels is off or feels is wrong or feels is a bit different, it, it, it's vital to go to go to your doctor, to seek help, to, to just to try to find answers because, like in Alan's case, maybe you're able to identify something that could be coming down the road that might cause you problems later, but there's something you can do to head it off. How important is that? It's so important to be proactive about our health and to be attuned to any changes that may be happening in your body. If something doesn't feel right to you, you should go see a doctor about it. And if you're experiencing some of the risk factors for Parkinson's, like these sleep changes or like the loss of sense of smell, you may want to consider seeing a neurologist or a movement disorder specialist who is a neurologist who's received additional training to focus on diseases like Parkinson's disease. Uh, Alan, um, God bless you. Um, I'm, I'm so happy that, that you were able to identify these issues early, that you were able to get into the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative to, to hopefully head off maybe some more severe symptoms down the road. And, and Alyssa, uh, thank you for the work that you continue to do on behalf of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, we will continue to follow you and the information that, that the foundation puts out. It's so important, important to so many different people. Alyssa O'Grady, thank you very much. Thank you. And your listeners can learn more by visiting michaeljfox.org slash get started. Alan, and thank you very much. Uh, uh, best of luck to you moving forward. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, you got it. We'll take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. Well, educators in the state of Michigan are hoping that a new program will work with them on and, and in the betterment of students here in the state of Michigan. The MyLeap program, the Michigan Department of Lifelong Education Advancement and Potential is now officially active. What will it do? How will it help educators? And then uh, how will it benefit students? Robert McCann's the executive director of the Michigan K-12 Alliance and joins us. Uh, Robert, good to talk with you again. Yeah, as always, thanks for having me. So my leap is officially active. Tell us about it. Well, you know, it was a new department that Governor Whitmer announced this summer, and it seemed like the goal... Uh, was and is to focus on really the wraparound services that what we would consider a, a traditional K-12 education to be. So the early childhood uh, part of it, the pre-K, getting kids ready for 
success at the K-12 level. And then the post-graduation, the community college, the, whatever uh, the trade schools that students want to get into after graduation, this department would help that transition as well. So anytime there's a new state department that gets announced, there's obviously more questions than answers. And I think for schools, our questions probably slash concerns were, is this going to be more bureaucracy in the process? Is this going to be duplicative bureaucracy, meaning we're reporting to two different agencies now? And so as this process has gotten to uh, its official launch this, this, this past few days, you know, that's really been our concern and our push to them is work with us. Don't create more work for us, but work with us. Let's make this a collaborative process focused on student success. So as this has gotten to launch, it, it, was there any more clarity provided in that effort on that front? Yeah, I, I think they've they've started making it clear what programs they are taking from existing state agencies, both, you know, obviously some programs from the Michigan Department of Education, some from the Licensing and Administration Bureau. So it's a hodgepodge of offices that are getting brought over to this new department. And we've had some good first communications with them with this idea that, you know, again, the last thing any school administrator, any teacher wants is more reporting to the state. You know, it takes time away from lessons takes time away from their focus on on the real job, which is, of course, their students. And I think this department understands that. They understand that that this needs to be a collaboration, not only between them and us, but between them and the other state agencies so that there's good communication going on and that there isn't this this sort of quagmire of government now that we're reporting to you and now we're reporting to you. And it's unclear where any of this mm -hmm. information even goes or who is looking at it. So. I think we're off to a good start, and we'll see where it goes from here. Sure, and I think with a new program, that's fair. What what you you mentioned the collaborative fronts that you can work on my leap with. What what are some of those? Well, I think anytime you look at at you know the the bureaucracy of government in terms of how it works with state uh, our, our public schools, I should say, you know the question is 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 there a better way to do it? Is there a more streamlined way to do it? And more importantly, is is there a conversation going on about what would actually work for schools? Mm. And I think some of the frustration that that I hear regularly from uh, school officials is it feels like a one way street that they get memos from the department. They get, uh, you know, sort of new rules passed down from the department. And sometimes they're not written in a way that feels helpful. Sometimes they're not written in a way that feels at all collaborative and it creates some frustration. And, I, and that's not to point fingers or place blame on anyone. But I think if we started this new department with a different approach of saying, how can we help? How can we work with our schools to focus and allow you to focus on what's best for kids, then we'd be getting off on a much, much stronger foot than we would otherwise. And so, you know, that's why I say as, as they're just getting started now, we've had some of those very, very initial conversations of how that can and should work. And what our hope is now that as they get their, their feet under them, as the department actually starts taking function, that, that they'll live up to that and work with us on that. So then how do students benefit from, a pro, from, from this type of, of collaboration? Well, I think, you know, the, the this sets a very clear goal for Governor Whitmer that, that K-12 education uh, isn't on an island on its own, that that it, it works very close in tandem with early childhood education. And, and that's something we agree with wholeheartedly. We know that uh, students are more successful getting into the K-12 system when they've had a, 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 a good pre-K experience or some sort of early childhood education type experience. So a department that is focused on that and is working to better that process of getting kids involved in that system and ensuring that those programs are working as intended, I think is a good thing. And at the same time, you know, we know that 
uh, you know, traditional four-year university is not for all of our kids. And if they don't know what's next for them after graduation, they struggle as they're finishing out their, sure. their K-12 system. So again, to have a department that is focused on helping them transition to whatever is best for them, whether that is a four-year university or a community college, a trade school, a work program, whatever that may be, students succeed their junior and senior years when they have a goal in mind. So a department that's focused squarely on, okay, we're going to help kids get into the K-12 system and we're going to help them transition out of it wherever they need to go. Mm -hmm. That is a good thing. And so, you know, it's, it's setting a very clear goal for, from the governor, in, in, in my opinion anyway, that, that she views this as, as an important next step in, in really what we've considered our traditional public education system. Well, let's hope that this collaboration uh, blossoms into something that can be valuable for all. Uh, Robert McCann, thanks so much. Appreciate the time as always. All right. Anytime. Thank you. Yep. That's Robert McCann, the executive director of the Michigan K-12 Alliance. I want to bring this up real quick before we go to break. Uh, ready for our your stupid criminal of the day? Ready always, for this one? Always. All right. Uh, you've heard of Shop with a Cop, right? Well, this was taking place in Livingston County uh, near a Walmart near Howell. Uh, There were a bunch of kids inside this Walmart with a bunch of Michigan State police officers. They had gift cards. They were shopping for themselves. A 62-year-old shopper with about $730 worth of crap runs out of the store, didn't check out, (laughs) runs out of the store, starts loading everything into her vehicle, and... uh, (laughs) The, the, her car was parked next to a cruiser. Cop and came out and said, uh, can I see your receipt? And then she said, I have no receipt. Come with us, please. Stupid criminal of the day. Got to take a break. More next. All right. Welcome back. Three o'clock hour. Good to have you. Still a lot to do today. We're going to talk coming up about the rate increases for DTE energy customers. That's coming up in just a couple of minutes. But I uh, do want to remind you. That, as always, every year, 760 WJR is proud to announce our annual Christmas on Us campaign. Help us recognize and honor those who have served our country and worked on the front lines to keep us safe. Nominate a Michigan family, first responder, and frontline worker families you know who are deserving, and we'll give them a gift of Christmas this year. Full details to make your nomination, visit WJR.com, WJR's Christmas on Us is brought to you by some of the most important sponsors uh, in our area, uh, including Hungry Howie's, Chet's Cleaning, Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health, and Guernsey Farms uh, Dairy. Uh, Very uh, important uh, thing that we do every year here at WJR. And uh, once the holiday season rolls around, um, uh, it's a special time of year, and we're happy to help out any way we can. Uh, all right, let's get to a couple of, of big stories making uh, headlines today. Um, General Motors has taken some interesting steps across the board. And they, like other automakers in the industry, have looked at where consumers and customers are at today. And it seems, based on kind of the rumblings from a a few different automakers that the transition from ice vehicles to EVs is, is not quite there yet, but the difficulty for these automakers is that they are facing a number of different uphill battles, including regulations being set by the federal government, 
and, and, and just consumer demand. So yesterday, GM CEO Mary Barra spoke with the Automotive Press Association and said that GM does still have a pathway to an all-EV portfolio by 2035. We're going to be, we're, we're going to be led by the customer. But I do believe this transition will happen over a period of time. But a number of issues, according to Barra, have disappointed her and other senior leaders at General Motors because of their EV production woes. And, and part of that is the supply chain. Not much you can do about that. But the Detroit News reported last week that GM was considering a return to hybrid vehicles. And that, to me, is pretty telling. Because Barr says that they've got the technology, hybrid technology, but they want to move to EVs as fast as you can. But they have the technology. They'll continue to look at where the market is and where the regulatory environment is. And that's really the 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 issue for these automakers. It's what's the market demand and what are the regu- what's the what what are the regulatory frameworks that are being put out? Because like me, I think many of you probably agree. EVs, hybrids, doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter what the vehicles are. It's what what are the what is the the market demand? Right? This is a, a, a key tenet of, of capitalism. It's the market dictates. And right now, the market isn't dictating that automakers go EV. That doesn't mean that isn't the future. I'm not saying that that's not coming down the pipe. But as we stand today, and even in the next handful of years, the increase in not only interest, but then really going to pull the trigger and, and getting behind the wheel of an EV, it's just not there yet. And so as a result, automakers are, are adjusting or at least looking into the, the, the forward motion of and how fast they're moving towards EV production. Something else is happening out of Washington, which is very interesting. Representative Patrick McHenry, uh, McHenry out of North Carolina, who was the interim speaker after Kevin McCarthy got booted, he says that he's not going to seek re-election after finishing out the rest of his term. Now, he's been a House member since 2005, and he now is the 37th member on Capitol Hill to say they're not going to seek re-election. 30 House members, seven senators, yes, that includes Debbie Stabenow, are all up for grabs. I don't know why that is. It seems to be a pretty staggering number i mean that that is a lot of representatives that aren't that don't want to run for re-election again and i don't know if if the the tenor on capitol hill has changed but something is is changing there is a shift because i you know there's a reason why lawmakers oftentimes serve so long it's because they make a lot of money and the benefits are good and you know it, it it's it can be a, an okay job if you get good at it. But for whatever reason, there is a bit of an exodus from Washington and on Capitol Hill. As now 37 members of, of Congress are, are leaving their seats and won't seek re-election. I just think it's very interesting. I don't know what it is. It's hard to read between the tea leaves. I, I can't imagine it's just the dysfunction 
or or the 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 heated vitriolic politics that we see now. I'm I'm not sure that's what it is, but for some reason, there's a considerable amount of lawmakers that just aren't aren't going to run for reelection. Uh, meanwhile, with her trial looming in just a couple of weeks, Jennifer Crumley, the mother of the Oxford High School shooter, says she wants certain evidence held back from her trial for fear that the jury would find it disgusting and inflammatory. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joins us for more on that story. Hi, Marie. Hi, Chris. With these trials just around the corner after the first of the year, we're probably going to be hearing a lot more of things like this. Trials for Jennifer Crumley and her husband James are set to begin in January. She's asked a judge to rule on whether or not the jury should hear that her son, Ethan, tortured baby birds before his shooting rampage at the high school that claimed to four student lives. Crumley's attorneys argue that the details are extremely disgusting, sickening and appalling. Those are the words they used and could be used against her unfairly. Ethan Crumley videotaped himself torturing and killing the birds. He hid the head of one bird under his bed for months and then brought it to school shortly before the killings. The Crumleys, who are the first parents in the country charged in a mass school shooting, face man, um, involuntary manslaughter charges. They're accused of ignoring their son's mental health troubles and bought, bought him a gun instead of getting help, the same gun that he used shooting uh, in the shooting two years ago. The prosecution has suggested that Crumley's parenting skills and lifestyle will paint a picture of irresponsible parenting. They have presented evidence of the couple having affairs, heavy drinking, pot smoking. The defense has argued that this is irrelevant to the case and would inflame the jury. Chris, we're looking at separate trials here, mm-hmm. but they're going to happen at the same time starting on January 23rd. You and I talked earlier, and our both of our questions were exactly the same. If you're worried about that particular video, I think your concerns need to be elsewhere. Because there's a lot of things out there that could incriminate you as to your neglect, your, you know, just just your 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 blatant ignorance of your of your child. I don't know that that video is the smoking gun of anything. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, the salacious, it's uh, shocking. I mean, I know that when we first heard it, you know, it is shocking to hear that. And so they're afraid of the impact on the jury in this case. Uh, but And I can understand that. That is for sure. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, the, the whole thing with the buying of the gun, all of that evidence that's been presented, that's pretty damning to me. That seems to be one of the more damning elements in this case. Now, I, I think that, you know, I, I've said this it, to me, if Karen McDonald has the, the Oakland County prosecutor has has taken this case to the lengths that she has, my gut would tell me that she probably has some pretty good evidence mm-hmm. that they can piece together to show that these were no show parents, that that they did things that were nonsensical. Um, but it's still going to be difficult to prove very and so that is going to be very interesting and and from that perspective maybe the crumblies don't want that video shown but that doesn't mean that it isn't just a piece of the puzzle right and and don't forget that just a few weeks ago 
this came to light when they asked for these separate trials, because yep. that was a major development. Correct. The reason for that was because there were two witnesses that were found in Florida that would be presenting evidence that the defense attorneys thought could be damaging to one or the other Correct. parent. So we don't know what that is yet. Yep. So that could be something else entirely. No doubt about it. Marie Osborne, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, we got to take a break. More coming up next on JR Afternoon. Don't go anywhere. Well, the Michigan Public Service Commission granted DTE Energy the rate increase of $368 million. It's a 6.4% increase on your monthly bill. And I think, fairly enough, there were uh, people that were very angry about that, considering the last year now where there have been some pretty extended outages. And it is getting more expensive, and some feel that they are not getting the service that they would be expecting for the price that they are paying. Brian Posthumus is representative out of the 90th District uh, and represents uh, in Lansing uh, and joins us. Representative, good to have you. Thanks for having me. Always, uh, always great to be on. Uh, what was your reaction to the Michigan Public Service Commission's decision? Uh, one of complete and utter not surprise, right? Like, I, I mean, we've been singing from the rooftops since the governor announced her uh, proposed uh, Michigan Green New Deal back over the summer that despite her claiming that this is going to decrease costs for everybody, it's very clear that it was going to increase costs and reduce reliability. And lo and behold, it only took a few weeks before costs went up. And so what are you hearing from from constituents on this issue? Uh, my constituents and, and uh, Michiganers all throughout the state have been very clear with me that what they are looking for in energy is higher reliability and lower costs. That's it. That's what they're concerned about. That's what they're worried about. And so they are extremely frustrated, but that the Democrat leadership has been lying to them for the last six months. Uh, and, and now costs are going up as a result of their plan. Have you talked to DTE leaders uh, about this issue? I mean, look, I, DTE has said they've set a pretty robust um, a schedule going forward. They want to introduce more technology into the grid and grid improvements, certainly taking back trees from wires and, and all of those things will help. But, it, but it, there is a cost to that. And that does get passed down to, to customers. And that can be frustrating when we have seen extended power outages, especially in the winter, like we saw last year. So what are you hearing from the utility themselves? So I've had conversations with them over the past year uh, specifically about reliability issues and, and what needs to be done in order to help uh, in, ensure that we have reliable power going to uh, going to people throughout the state of Michigan. And they've, they've said they've been they've been absolutely working on it. And it's a much bigger focus this year than it has been in the past. I hope that's the case. And, uh, you know, hopefully hopefully things do get addressed. If not, there's going to be some some more. Uh, more stern conversations when Republicans take back majority. What do those conversations look like? Well, if, if we can't fix the reliability issues and we can't fix the affordability issues, then why do we? Why are we in a situation where there isn't the competition needed? Right? Like uh, the 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 
primary argument for the utility companies is it's supposed to create a more affordable and more reliable grid. And so if we can't fix those, if we can't fix those issues, then maybe we have to reassess that. Mm. So then what's the answer? Uh, because DTE has taken an approach of wind and solar. They're talking about, you know, uh, uh, going carbon neutral, things like that. Is that the answer? Is that an answer of to to fix the reliability issue? Will we see a reduction of costs at some point? What what's the answer here? Do you think? Well, well, the the answer first is is that we have to we have to go back and undo this crazy pie in the sky uh, policy initiative that the Democrats ushered through this this Green New Deal for Michigan that is mandating renewable energy by 2040, and it just isn't going to work. Look, I mean, if we want to have an impact on, on the environment, if we want to have a positive impact on the environment, we need to be focusing on where the problem is. The problem is in developing nations around the world, not here, at Mich- not here in Michigan. So we need to be helping to transition those countries from dirtier fuels to cleaner fuels. So why are we not doubling down on natural gas production and exporting it to those countries? That's where we should be focusing. Not only would that help the environment more so than anything this Green New Deal package is going to do, but it will also make us a national leader in, in natural gas production and energy production here at home. Yeah. Representative Brian Prostumus, thanks so much. Appreciate the time, and, and we'll continue to to uh, see what, what we get with this next rate increase. Thanks again. Thank you. Have a great day. Yep, you got it. Um, in the meantime, we did reach out to DTE, and they sent over some information that I want to pass along to you. Uh, they say that this increase is to offset by a $300 million reduction in fuel and other costs. So a DTE electric residential customer uses 500 kilowatt hours we'll see a bill increase of $0.09 a day or about $2.56 per month to support needed investments. This keeps the average residential bill increase below the rate of inflation and below the national average. The new rates support DTE's plan to accelerate electric system upgrades with the goal of improving reliability for customers by more than 60% over the next five years. I'd love to get your reaction to this 800-859-0957 800-859-0wjr i understand kind of the the gut reaction that well our reliability isn't isn't where we want it to be and as a result why are we paying more money i, I guess my thought is dte has said that right it's it's improving the reliability it's making necessary necessary upgrades and with that is a cost and like anything in life it always gets passed down to us it always gets passed down to us the consumer the buyer the customer and it's so for me I, I i live in the real world i'm not surprised by this now the public service commission did grant them this increase but it was about half of what they had asked for so i'd i'd love to know where you're at on this 800-859-0957 800-859-0wjr i think dt's in a tough spot because 
they have to make these upgrades. Well, there's a cost to that. So where do you go? You ask for, for a rate increase. But on the flip side, as a customer, as somebody who is in the dark for hours and hours or days on end, you're losing food, you're, you, you know, it becomes a much bigger issue. And to feel like you're getting that rate increase maybe feels like a twist of the knife. When you feel like your 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 power isn't it's not good enough. It's not reliable enough. 800-859-0957-800-859-0 WJR. We'll get to your calls. We'll get to your text. Uh, as well, and lots more to do. Interesting college football story coming up for you, too. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're wrapping about this DTE energy rate increase. I, it's two sides of the coin. I get it. The company says they need more money. There's critical infrastructure upgrades that they need to maintain the grid. They want to infuse this grid with new technologies so that they can get people back on faster. But that costs money. And like everything in your life, whatever you're buying, there's a cost to that. And it always gets passed down to you. On the other side, you've got customers, you, the the bill payer, the rate payer, and you're going, well, wait a second. You can't keep my lights on. I've lost, you know, two fridges worth of food. And, and now you want me to pay more money per month? I, to me, these are two valid feelings. They're two valid stances. The reality is, is if we are to expect a, an uptick in our in our reliability, is there a is there a dollar amount attached to that? Eight hundred eight five nine zero nine five seven. Let's go to Jeff in Waterford. What's up, Jeff? Hey, how you doing today? Good, man. Well, I think uh, DTE is downright criminal. I mean, they need to open up the energy sector to more companies than just DTE. DTE does whatever they want with absolutely no oversight whatsoever. And they say that there's this public sector uh, board is their oversight. Well, all they do is just limit how much they can raise them. If you look at DTE's profits over the last five, six years, they have increased exponentially, with last year being uh, probably about 7.16%. Uh, it's just insane. If DTE needs more money, then maybe they should stop advertising. Maybe they should stop paying their, you know, these crazy bonuses out and wasting money on carbon neutral, which truly is not even carbon neutral uh, energy sources that they want to put in. They need to open it up to the most reliable and the least expensive, which currently would be coal, um, coal capture and natural gas, which in Michigan we have plenty of. So there are ways to solve the problems. Just these central planners don't want to do it that way. Yeah, I look, I, I, I think, and Jeff, I appreciate the call. I mean, for me, you know, having that, you know, once you create a system where you don't have the competition, it, it does it does create some some there's no conflict, right? You're able to kind of rule the roost. But at the same time, I think from a from a customer's perspective, it's just keep keep our lights on. Just can we just make sure that we don't lose power? And when we do lose power, it's for a short amount of time and it's not for days on end. And look, this isn't this isn't an indictment on on 
the workers. Those people out there are working to try to get people back on as fast as, as possible. This is they are they are have a very difficult job, but it is it is a problem. And I unfortunately, I don't know what the answer is, but it feels like when we continue to see rate increases and we haven't seen an uptick in the reliability, I think that's where folks like you, I think that's where you have the right to feel a little frustrated. Meanwhile, DTE's got to make the changes. They're the ones that have to make those tangible, noticeable changes to get people back online much faster. Let's go to Jack in Port here on. What's up, Jack? Well, I'm a 47-year DTE employee, now retired. Okay. And I worked many, many storms in the Detroit area. Mm-hmm. And many of the neighborhoods are great neighborhoods. But in many neighborhoods where the alleys have been vacated, or not used, uh, in some cases, the alleys were so overgrown and so strewn with debris, DTE, and I was with the crew members, we had to get bulldozers to push the crap out of the alleys so we could get the trucks in there. Mm. Other locations where they didn't have alleys, they just had easements back there, uh, you want to go through the backyards to get to the poles. Uh, so many of the yards had aggressive dogs and you knock on the door and you tell hey ma'am you know you need to get that dog in the house before we can work back there well i gotta call my son to come get the dog and oh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things uh, and the 10 foot tree clearing well if the old tree that fell down was a 70 foot tree that 10 foot tree clearing doesn't do you much good yeah no yeah, jack and, and i know that that you guys i mean i'm sure they still do uh, have a ton of hurdles that they got to get over to get back to where they can make these fixes. And that's one of the, the upgrades that DC talks about is they're, they're basically remotes. So they can actually, once they put them in these power stations or on these transformers and something happens, they can actually reroute energy from a different grid back to the grid that lost power so that at least there's electricity streaming through. That's great. That's, that's, that's a, a necessary move. We don't have it yet, but that's part of the upgrades that DTE talks about. Now, you put that in conjunction with the, the, the tree clearing. That's great. Houses that are being built now today, all the lines are underground. That's great. So we are getting to a place where I think we're going to start seeing better reliability. But that doesn't mean that in the here and now, you've got people that are upset about it. And, Jack, I appreciate the call. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Marty in Brighton. What's up, Marty? How you doing, Chris? Good, man. What's going on? I'm 75 years old. I built, live out in Brighton. I've been here 17 years. Mm-hmm. I've got DTE Electric, and I said I had to buy a whole house generator 15 years ago because as of last year, I have been without power 79 times. Uh, the longest what? Uh, was like, yes, yeah, 79 times without power. Now, not all day, but I've had, I've had a three and a half day was the longest, and like two to four hours is the shortest. But that's how many times I've been without power, and that's it, it's ridiculous. And I hear these promises, the bills keep going up, and it, it's, it's crazy. No, Marty, and look, that's the frustration, right? And then and then you feel like you got to go out and spend you know fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars on a whole house generator. I get it. I, I look. Th- this is why I think 
that when you sit down and have a, a realistic conversation about this, look, nobody's yelling, nobody's getting angry, but it's frustrating from your perspective when when the the power is out for an extended period of time. And and when the company says, well, look, we are going to make the changes. We just we need the extra money coming in or the extra capital coming in from from your bill every week. It's frustrating. But this is where I think DTE now has laid out the plan. Now they got to go execute. And again, the Michigan Public Service Commission didn't they didn't approve everything that the full number that DTE had requested. DTA had requested up over six hundred million dollars. They ended up getting shy of three seventy. So they got, we'll call it half, but still, you have to make those those changes, those necessary changes that you talk about. And look, you want to open up the electric, the 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 uh, the the somebody talked about just a couple of minutes ago, opening up the utility, opening up. Uh, unleashing the energy, that's great. Meanwhile, right, I mean, for the here and now, folks are upset about the reliability. Folks are upset about the amount of money they're paying in relation to the reliability. And I think that's really the issue. Uh, let's go to William real quick in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, William. Hey, uh, good afternoon. Hey, uh, I used to live, I lived in Detroit for about 30 years. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, when I was in, uh, living there, I went to a public forming with uh, Detroit Edison. Mm-hmm. They Back in the mid-90s, they were talking about getting rid of the power lines. Mm-hmm. They only went power modules for each home. Mm-hmm. They would last about two months. They would come, after they got the energy completed, they would come take it up and put a new one in. Yeah. But yeah, I never uh, heard any more about that. No, and I the the lines have been. I mean that that is the that is a one of the issues of contention for a lot of folks. It's well bury the lines, and I I think that that's fair. I mean I think that is fair. But having the ability and then the realistic the real the realistic possibility of putting ex, lines that are above ground underground. It is a nightmare. It would be costly. I mean, it would disrupt current infrastructure. It would be very difficult. But that is certainly a, a, a the go-to for a lot of folks. Real quick, I'm going to go to Paul in Brighton. Hey, Paulie. It's not a nightmare. They, we did this in Seattle a long time ago uh, because Seattle has 100-mile-an-hour windstorms coming off the Pacific. Mm-hmm. They just get a trench digger. You leave the lines that are on the poles up until you dig a trench and you lay the new lines and then you disconnect for about two hours to hook up the other ones and boom, it's done. They took down all the poles in my neighborhood. They were just boom, boom, gone. And in in urban areas where it's densely populated, that's what you got to do. And rural areas like where I'm out here in Livingston County, it's not so feasible because it's not as cost effective. Mm-hmm. But if you've got the urban areas, you don't have to worry about it. The crews can be you know, well disposed to come out to the urban uh, the rural areas where uh, you can't really bury them. It's not as feasible. I mean, it would cost millions and millions and millions of dollars to do that. So, do, but, but, Chris, power outages cost millions and millions of dollars, and your rates are still going up. Paul, you're not wrong, but my point is, for people that are upset about an uptick in their monthly bill now, could you imagine if they had to bury the if they buried the lines? Could I you mean, imagine? If, could you imagine if shareholders at DTE had to take a little less 
so that the customers could have a little more. I mean, that's fair. I mean, that, look, that's a fair criticism. But my point is, they're going to make, they're going to pass that down to to us. They're going to pass that down to the ratepayer. And well, so and that's because that's because Chris, there really isn't a free market because there's the, there's only one set of wires that comes to my sure. house. Yeah. So I mean, we, and the same with your water. Yep. So we're kind of over a barrel, and that's why I hate to to say the bad word regulation. The state should do that. All right, Paul. I appreciate it. I got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. Couple of big sports stories that I want to get to. So naturally, I get to talk to my buddy Steve Cordy. Steven, hello. Hello there, Christopher. Hopefully, all is well with you and yours as we begin our chat. Brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your windows, roofing, and siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. What's on your mind there, fella? Well, let's start with, uh, as Kenny Brown uh, settles in. Uh, hey, KB. Let's start with... Uh, uh, he said hello oh, yeah. to you, by hello. the way. Who was that? Steve? Uh, Steve yeah. Oh, hey, Steve. Uh, yeah, Steve. Uh, um, let's start with the A.J. Hinch news, because uh, he's going to be around for a little while. Yeah, it's uh, good news here. Uh, off the heels of former Tiger skipper Jim Leland taking his rightful spot in the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, the Tigers have indeed signed their skipper, A.J. Hinch, to a contract extension. Uh, this was all announced yesterday. Uh, by the president of baseball operations, Scott Harris, at the uh, baseball winter meetings. Uh, as it turns out, Mr. Harris approached A.J. on October 2nd, the day after the regular season ended, about the extension. Uh, the two sides completed the extension in the week after the 2023 season ended. So clearly, uh, Scott Harris wasting no time thinking A.J. Hinch is indeed the guy that's going to take him to the promised land. Now, all we know is uh, A.J. Hinch has two years left on his existing deal, and then the extension will kick in. The specific terms of the contract were not disclosed, but, fellas, uh, it's looking like uh, A.J. Hinch will be around for a long time, and I'm all in favor of that. Yeah, imagine how many years you get if you actually finish over 500. Now, why you got to be like that? Uh, he's been here th- how many years now? He hasn't been over 500 yet. I like him. Okay, okay. Have uh, you seen this roster? Yeah. Come on, Kenny. Oh, okay. That's what we're doing now. 221 and 265. That's what we're doing. Now. What, 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 is, what is he? Season. How about not is going to Is he Penn and Teller? The first is he year. just making things happen, bringing things out of see, nowhere? See, I, I come off looking like a hater here because I'm just giving facts out. <laughs> because you are. The first year when he had like the nine or ten game lose, that's when you was why he didn't finish 500 that year. So they had a team that could have finished 500, right? They had that big yeah. loser streak in April. He, I he, didn't tell him to go for April or he whatever. He managed they did. over his head. That's what he did. Okay. I'm, I, I like him now. I'm just Oof. saying though, three years under 500 records, and we giving extensions out. That's I will, what we doing. I will tell you this. Uh, we talked to Jason Benetti today. Hold on. Oh, oh, Matt Millen's on the phone. Yeah. Keep okay. Talking. Good God. Oh come on. Uh, we talked to Jason Benetti today, and I, I, he is one of the best in the business. And Tigers no fans are going to love love this guy. Yeah, we had him. Doing Tiger yeah, Baseball. Yeah, we had him on last week. He's, he's a great, great guy. guy. Great he's guy. a uh, walking baseball encyclopedia, yeah. and uh, he is just darn good at what he does. Calls a heck of a football game, too. Um, meanwhile, Jim Leland getting into the Hall of Fame. I um, think it's w- rightfully deserved. You know, you talk about one of the more beloved 
figures in Detroit sports history, and I think Jim Leland would certainly fall into that category, fellas. Uh, you know, a lot of people kind of forgot that he took the Marlins to a World Series title back in 1997, and uh, the uh, mathematical part of this, he was named on 15 of 16 ballots in the election process uh, during a meeting of the Hall's Contemporary Baseball Era Committee. Uh, we know what he did uh, in his closing uh, years here as a manager of the Detroit Tigers, and it was rather significant. Um, he won two pennants during his tenure here, 2006 and 2012, earned four postseason appearances. And the one thing about Jim Leland, uh, don't need to tell you guys, you knew exactly where you stood. Yep. Uh, he was a no BS guy and, might I add, a tremendous sense of humor. And uh, I could listen. If you gave me a six-pack of beer, I could listen to his stories for hours. Well, that beer ain't going to last hours. There'll be no. minutes. You'll be able to listen to what hat does he go in under? That's the question. Pirates, right? Marlins, or Tigers? Well, uh, I, I, I guess you would say the team you won a World Series with. Yeah, but he was only there like a couple years in Florida, though. Right, but he won a World Series. Right, but I, I think he's more known for the Pirates. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he did a lot of great things here in Detroit. Did a lot of things, great things with the Pirates. Even though they well, and he's still series. here. I mean, he's still right. here. He's, yeah. uh, you know, consulting and, and, and whatnot. He, Does he, he get that choice? He was talking about it in his uh, press conference the other day. He said he didn't want to, he didn't want to embarrass okay. or get the other teams mad at him, so he was going to consult with some people on it. But usually you're going to go in under something. Right. Well, and that's going to be the question with Justin Verlander, too, right? Yeah. I don't think you can go into baseball's hall topless, can you? I know. I wouldn't recommend it. No, I'll put it that way. Verlander uh, better go in the Tigers. Uh, tomorrow, I want to talk about this uh, NCAA story with uh, paying players under this new subdivision. I think they're trying desperately to try to grab any sort of power that may be left. But we'll talk about that tomorrow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it because uh, I, I do have a lot of questions here. Yeah. But then again, it's the NCAA going to b- uh, bat for the student athlete. Hardy, hard, yeah. hard. Yeah, they got no answers for those questions. Steven, we'll talk tomorrow. All right, looking forward to All it. All right, see ya. Uh, KB, what do we got coming up today? What are we doing? Uh, we're going to talk Only to, an hour show today, Only an right? hour show. We're going to talk about the women and the people not saying much about this uh, sexual thing going on, Hamas, and yeah. these groups not talking. We're going to have a, a guest on. I don't want to say the name of the guest, but people know this person. They'll be on. Okay. And that's about what we're going to do. We're going to talk to our Stallone guy, and then we're going to talk about yeah. Mitch being on TMZ. I, I saw got that. To, I, I saw I, I Mitch on to, TMZ. I, I just happened to be crossing about it. So oh, to, my God. You know, it's good. It's good I, stuff. I, I didn't see they're big Carmen fans of him over there in TMZ. I didn't see it with Carmen Electra or anything. Yeah. Any All scandal. right, Mitch Allen coming up next. See you tomorrow. Peace.